I'm going to give you a quote that you're going to see on the side screens that I want you to really try to grab hold of. Again, prayerfully listen to this and let it sort of give for us the departure point as we go on this journey in this message. Here it is from Colin Smith. There is a particular darkness that sometimes comes to those who work hardest in the Lord's service. Resentment towards God is the special or the unique temptation of mature believers who serve Him well. Now, you may never have thought of that before in your life. You may have, but I want you to think about it again, maybe for the first time, but I want you to really understand that when you serve God, when you walk with the Lord for years, there can trickle into you, there can settle into me, a special privilege that we think we have where God should do our will rather than we should do his will. And when God does not do our will, and just today talking to people who are struggling with that, as a parent, I mean, come on, listen, if you're a parent, you understand this. God, will you just do this for my daughter? Will you just do this for my son? Just show yourself faithful. And God doesn't do anything, or at least in our vision or in our understanding, he doesn't do anything. And there can become some resentment in us. Lord, just do what I'm telling you to do, and everything will go better. There's what seems to be a righteous animosity that can develop toward God. It's an amazing phenomenon we can actually be angry furiously so with god it's not good betrays a problem in our hearts but we're capable of doing this it's not unique and by the way again to colin smith who is an evangelical free church pastor up in the chicago area to his point it is very much something that it can occur in those who walk along with the lord where we feel we have an airtight case. We provide, we prove that God has perpetrated an injustice in our lives. You can get to see this, by the way. You can see this clearly in Psalm 73. It's one of my, my favorite psalms of the Bible, written by a guy named Asaph. And he writes this, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, he flips the coin, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. In other words, God, you're good to everybody else around me, but you're not really that good to me. What is the problem? And all of a sudden, in the hearts of mature believers, the gavel begins to pound, accusing God of wrongdoing. It's demonstrated clearly. You remember the story of the prodigal son. You remember the elder brother. You clearly can see this animosity that developed in the elder brother towards the father because the father was gracious, unimaginably merciful to the younger son who squandered the entire inheritance. So I want you to think on what I'm about to tell you. When this resentment and by the way do not think for a moment that you're immune to this don't think for a moment that your faith has grown 
to the point where you're never going to stumble in this because that's really likely how it will sneak up on you. But when that moment comes, when your heart lurches against God, not understanding why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to the people that I love? When that moment comes, listen, it's a grace problem. It's going to be a grace problem. Let me put it a little differently. It's a problem with the grace of God that he is showing other people, but you don't think he's showing you. It's not unusual for those who serve God the hardest to resent when the undeserving are blessed. And what we're about to see, now listen, I want you to see this because some of you are coming in today for the first time and we're in part 13 of a series and Jonah you've got to be able to get familiar with the backstory of this what we're about to see is that this resentment provides the very ugly landscape of Jonah the prophet of God's heart so we're going to uncover it point number one we're going to have three points and the first one is this we're going to see Jonah's heart uncovered so I want you to read with me Jonah chapter 4 just look at verse 1 and let's really try to grab the angst that's in Jonah's heart. Here's what it says. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now, I want you to hear me for a second. Can you look at me for just a moment? The Hebrew language, Old Testament translated from the Hebrew. The Hebrew language didn't have exclamation points. It didn't have underlining, bold, italics. When a biblical writer wanted to really emphasize something, really wanted to accentuate something, it piles on superlatives and it repeats itself. So when we read this and you read these superlatives, I want you to really know this is the Hebrew language's way of saying, you got to crank this up. This is massive. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. It literally means, if you translate it straight from the Hebrew, it was evil to Jonah with great evil. I mean, it is anger, raw, viscous, vicious anger in Jonah's heart. We're talking anger on the level of extreme hatred and loathing. Now, I'm, I'm trying to get you to understand this is anger on steroids. This is extreme anger. He doesn't just say, now read, read the verse again. Jonah doesn't just say, quote, I really hate that the Ninevites repented. He doesn't say that. His anger is personal. His anger is directed to God. Now, that's almost unfathomable. Jonah is furious with God. He hates that God forgave the Ninevites, that God did not destroy the people of Assyria. In fact, one person explained it this way. It's not, it was not simply the case that Jonah could not bring himself to appreciate Nineveh. Rather, to a shocking extent, he could not stand God. Not in that moment. Now, are you climbing inside the emotion and the passion of this text? Because you can read this, and you can really get through it pretty quickly, verse 1, and, and sort of as a little blip on your radar going, well, I, don't, I don't think Jonah was very happy at the situation. 
it was more that it was more than Jonah not being happy. Jonah was absolutely furious. He could not even stand God in this moment because God was absolutely doing what he did not want him to do. He forgave the Assyrian people. You see, he lit the fuse with his prophetic bomb. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overcome. He's thinking... He's hoping, all right, my preaching lit the fuse. Now it's going to detonate, and Israel is going to no longer have an incredibly evil, an incredibly vicious enemy called Assyria. But the bomb never went off. He was offended. He was angry. Now, what was he angry at? You ready? This whole point boils down to this. You've got to see this, and most of us miss it. He's angry at grace. He's angry at the grace that God gave. Nothing is more disturbing, Colin Smith said again, to a comfortable faith or a comfortable church. Nothing is more disturbing to a comfortable person than God's passion for the world. God loves to save people. He loves to be gracious toward the undeserving. Luke tells us this in chapter 15. Jesus is speaking. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. God is absolutely, ecstatically joyful. When somebody repents. You see, Jonah believed that these wicked, cruel, merciless Assyrians would go back to their evil ways. And guess what? Now listen, he was right. They did. One generation passes. Forty years later, after this great revival of Nineveh, and then all of a sudden, the Assyrians, listen to this, the Assyrians would completely destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. Israel was divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Ten of their twelve tribes were in the northern kingdom. Two were in the southern kingdom. Assyria came 40 years after this revival and completely, viciously demolished Israel, the whole entire northern kingdom. In fact, listen to Nahum the, Nahum the prophet Listen to him describe this devastation. Horsemen charging, flashing sword, glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. You see, he got a visual picture, a snapshot of the devastation that Assyria would give to Israel. And it happens 40 years after this revival. See, Jonah likely understood what was coming. And the finger, now listen, the finger that he's pointing at God, his heart is so full of, of vitriol and blame. It was accusatory. He's saying, God, if you don't destroy these people, they're going to destroy your people. And he could not understand why God would save people who are going to hurt Israel and had been hurting Israel so severely. Now, I want you to think of this. It's so easy. Listen, I know how easy this is. I wasn't always the one preaching. 
in the churches where I was pastoring. I sat in the pew like you did week after week, like you do. And it's easy to kind of skip over these things and not let them settle into the impact in your heart. But I want you to, to really think on this. Slow down for just a second. Do you have somebody in your life that has hurt you so badly that you're still feeling the effects of this? And if their face comes to your mind, your first response in your heart before you can rein it in is one of anger, one of hatred, one of bitterness, one of resentment. Maybe it was somebody that got you fired. Maybe it was somebody that divorced you. Maybe it was somebody that hurt you when you were a child. Listen, there are hurts that have been leveled at all of us, and sometimes they find a lodging place in our hearts, and they become toxic. Sometimes the toxicity of it is so deeply embedded, we don't even know how it's impacting our lives 5, 10, 40 years later. The blinds on Jonah's heart, I want you to picture that, curtains, blinds, I want you to picture this. The blinds are pulled up, the curtains are parted. The door to his heart swings wide open, and you and I, we get to see what's really in it. And what's really in the heart of Jonah, here it is. It's selfishness, it's racism, it's hatred, it's bitterness, it's unforgiveness. And listen, listen, this is the prophet of Israel. This is the top prophet in Israel. He was famous. God had used him in remarkable ways. But when you get to see his heart, he is so full of sinfulness that it's him who's in need of redemption and repentance. Well, you get to point number two, and we begin to see that Jonah's repentance really never took hold. Now, I said this in chapter two. You remember when he was submerged below the winds and the billows, and it was plunging him to the roots of the mountains at the bottom of the sea? And he's swallowed by that great fish. And some of us think that's just too fantastic. Listen, there's a lot more incredible things that God has done than a fish swallowing a human being. But that's what the Word of God says. That's what Jesus says. I believe it. He's inside that fish for three days, three nights. And he prays chapter 2 out of that. And I remember telling you, hopefully you recall, that really Jonah's prayer was hardly one of repentance. It gets close. He's heading in that direction. But he stops. There's idols in the Gentiles' hearts, but as for me, he's starting to compare himself. I look pretty good next to them. It's here, chapter 4, that we see clear evidence that Jonah, despite his prayer in chapter 2, he has not fully repented. Look at verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord. Now he's praying. This is virtually the first time or the second time, rather, in the entire book that he prays. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Here's a principle you want to live by. You ready? I would write this one down if you're not planning on it. I think you should. The moment we try and explain our sin is the evidence we need that we're not repentant. Anybody that's explaining their sin is no longer in the realm of repentance. 
And Jonah presents to God a case for why he was innocent all along, justifying. He begins to present a case that defends his disobedience. Look at verse 1 again. Can you see that again? The word displeased. You know what that word means? It means to be broken up by grief, not because of his own heart that wasn't truly sorrow, that it was loveless and disobedient. That's not why he's displeased. That's not why he's broken up. He's broken up because God did not destroy Israel's enemies. So it looks like Jonah was displeased. He was grieving. He was sorrowful. He was broken up. Listen, it wasn't because he was seeing his need for God's grace. He was seeing that he doesn't want the Assyrians to get God's grace. They weren't worth saving to Jonah. They didn't deserve God's salvation. And we get a hint of that mindset. Look at what he says, even in verse 2. Yet in my country, there's a racism here. There's a superiority here. You see, the Jewish mindset, let's say that you're a Jew, then I'm a Jew. In the Old Testament, actually even today, the Jewish mindset views their land, the promised land, as God's gift to them, and rightfully so, because God gave it to them. It's for their own blessing. That's how the Jews understood that the land was given by God to us for our blessing. That's not why God gave them the land. Here's why God gave them the land. Look at Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God made this nation called Israel, he gave them a land called the promised land in order to bless them, watch, in order to bless them and through them to bless the entire earth. But the problem is this. The Jewish mindset in the Old Testament stopped at God gave this land to us to bless us. They did not continue in order for us to bless all the earth. So there's a problem. My country, well, God's grace is for Israel. God's grace is for me because I'm an Israelite. But the Assyrians, they're outside of the promises. They're outside of the covenant. I don't want them to be blessed. I just want Israel to be blessed. This is the problem that's going on in Jonah's mind. This attitude serves as an opportunity for us to really learn something. We're going to discern. I'm going to give you seven ways that you can truly tell when somebody is repentant. I'm going to really encourage you to write these down. I'm going to encourage you to take your notes. This, these are applicable for parents. How do you know when your children are truly sorrowful to the point that they're repentant? How do you know when a coworker who has really hurt you is sorrowful, or a college roommate, or a high school friend, or a spouse? How do you know when that person truly is sorrowful? Because every one of us have experienced sorrow that doesn't lead to change, and they do it again. And the second, and the third, and the tenth, and the hundredth time hurts worse and worse. So how do you really know when someone is repentant? That's what I'm going to 
teach you, and we're going to teach you this from the Word of God. We're going to have to go to 2 Corinthians or, in Donald Trump's, Trump's vernacular, 2 Corinthians. Chapter 7, verse 10. If you've got the Bible that's in that pew, probably can't read it in here with the dim light, but it's page 967. How do you know the difference? Now listen, look at me for a second. You can do both. Turn to your Bible and look at me. You can figure out how to do it. How do you know the difference between worldly sorrow that leads to death and godly sorrow that leads to repentance? How do you discern the difference? I want to know this, and I want you to know this. How do you discern the difference? Here's what 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. How do you know the difference? Paul is about to give us in the very next verse seven clear signs for true godly sorrow that's going to lead to repentance. Here they are. Let's work through them one by one. Here's the first one. Earnestness. Here's verse 11. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. And he's going to give six more. What is earnestness? Now here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. As I walk you through these seven signs of godly grief that leads to repentance, true grief, true sorrow, as I walk you through them, I want you to put them in your own experiences. Put them in your own life. This is really a way to measure your own sorrow, your own repentance, as well as those that you love. Earnestness. It means to make every effort immediately to make amends and not repeat it. It's the opposite of indifference or neglect. Now watch this because this is what a lot of us do when you take days and weeks to begin repairing a breach that you have created in a relationship by hurting somebody. Listen, that's worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow that leads to repentance has an immediacy about it. There's an urgency about it. You don't even want to go another day without trying to bring peace back to this relationship. You don't have to think about it. There's no, I'll deal with it later when I see that person or if I run into that person. Listen, you are taking the offensive. If you're waiting on the defensive, that's worldly grief, and that will lead to the death of that relationship. If you want godly grief that will repent, this is what it looks like. There's an earnestness about it. The seriousness. You get to see this, by the way. Do you remember when Peter, after Jesus died and was buried... Before he understood, it was after he was resurrected and, and ascended back to heaven, Peter didn't know what to do, so he did what he knows to do, and he went back fishing. He really abandoned his call. But just before that, do you remember that Peter denied the Lord three times? Hey, you're the one that's with that Jesus person. Right when Jesus was on a mock trial, being prepared to be crucified, and Peter three times says, I don't know who you're talking about. I don't know this person. He lied, denying him three times. Well, Peter's back fishing, and Jesus walks on the lake, the Sea of the Galilee, the shore, and Peter recognizes him. He's out in the boat. Now, this is what earnestness looks like in godly repentance. He doesn't even wait to take off his clothes. He doesn't even wait for the boat to get to the shore. He leaps over the the rail of the boat and swims his way to the shore and goes up to Jesus 
to reconnect, and Jesus allows him three times to affirm his faith. That's earnestness. I'm not even going to wait for the boat to reach the beach. I'm going to dive in and get over there. Well, secondly, how do you know? How do you know when somebody is truly repentant? Well, Paul says there's an eagerness to clear yourselves. There's an eagerness to clear yourselves. Means, now you got to listen to this carefully. It means to make a defense for yourself so that you're vindicated, so that you're declared innocent or made innocent. Now listen to this because I'm going to explain that. The reason I've got to explain it is this. Defending yourself is almost always a sign of worldly grief. You don't really care to make a repair to the breach. You just want to look good. You want to swing the laser eye of guilt off of you and put it on somebody else. That's usually what defensiveness does. The most mature of us don't even bother defending ourselves. We let the Lord do it. We trust him in it. So what do I mean then when, it means, when I say that it, makes, uh, it means to make a defense for yourself? It doesn't mean to defend your actions like Jonah did in verse 2. God, this is why I did what I did. I knew you would forgive him. It doesn't mean to justify your sin. Listen, it's not an admission of wrongdoing followed by the word but. Now, haven't you had that happen? I know I really shouldn't have said what I said, but you made me so mad. That's not godly repentance. I know I shouldn't have walked out on you, but you hurt me. No, that's not godly repentance. That's worldly sorrow that's leading to death the death of that relationship. If you want that relationship to come back to life, parents to kids, husbands to wives, and vice versa, you want to come back to life, then you've got to learn that it's not an admission of wrong, and then you follow it with the word but. Here's what it means. It means simply you confess. You confess to wrongdoing with an overriding desire to clear your name with the one that you've hurt, the one that you've sinned against, to remove the stigma, the consequences of that sin, to get rid of the guilt and prove yourself once again trustworthy. That's what it means to be eager to clear yourself. And we've tried to do this with marginal success with our children. I have four kids, 21 all the way down to 10. And what we've tried to teach our children, Denise and I, is that there's a big difference between saying sorry and asking for forgiveness. It's really easy to say sorry, relatively speaking. You know what we try to reserve sorry for? Accidents. Things that we didn't do intentionally. I mean, for instance, if you come in to see me one day at the church and and you're walking in and you got a cup of coffee because you know I like coffee. And you come bring, by the way, I like coffee with a little bit of cream and no sugar. But you're coming in and, uh, and you trip. And the cup of coffee, coffee goes flying all over me. You didn't mean to do that, hopefully. You didn't mean to do that. You didn't mean to do that. All that you need to do or all that I would do if it was me that did that would just say sorry. I'd probably say it a million times. But I would say sorry because it was an accident. But if you're coming into my office and you're angry at me because something that I said to you after the sermon and you came in and you got angry and you threw that cup of coffee on me in anger and after you cooled down, well, listen, a sorry is no longer enough. That's a Band-Aid on a gaping wound and it will not heal. 
Because what you just did, or what I just did, if I had done that to you, was just put a, I gave a reason for why Jesus had to die on the cross. His blood had to be shed for that one. When I tripped, his blood wasn't needing to be atoning for that. But in my anger and I threw it on you, that's the blood of Christ that takes that one away. And that one needs to be asked, that one needs to have forgiveness asked. You see, there's a difference between saying sorry and asking for forgiveness. An eagerness to clear yourselves means that you understand that, that when you've hurt somebody, it's not a token band-aid apology. It is truly understanding you've sinned. You have hurt that person. You've created a breach. You need to recognize that. There needs to be forgiveness asked for and definitely forgiveness given. That's what repairs. Then Paul goes on, indignation number three. Here's the evidences of godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Indignation means you've got a heart filled with godly sorrow that hates. Listen, it hates the sin that you committed that hurt that person. It hates the sin that you've discovered in your heart through this action. It's a holy anger. It's an outrage. Listen, not over the other person's sin, over your own sin. And it's not an outrage that your sin was discovered. It's an outrage that your sin damaged the relationship. See, worldly grief gets angry at the discovery, not the sin itself. And it results in self-pity. It results in justification. Godly grief hates. It hates the sin. It's infuriated at the hurt that you've caused somebody, the hurt that you have done that's created a breach with you and God the hurt that you've done that's even created guilt and shame in your own life that's anger that's holy outrage that's indignation and then number four is alarm now listen this is these are the things that I teach in counseling all the time so frequently I'll get somebody to come into counsel counseling and they'll say well listen how do I know How do I know that person truly is repentant? Because I can't keep getting hurt like this. Well, these are the seven ways that you understand that. Alarm. It means to suddenly be awakened to the true picture of your sin and how easily you are overcome by it. Listen, there's nobody here, including me, chiefly me, that can go even a day without selfish thoughts. Listen, we are sinners in need of grace. And if you're a Christian, you're a saved saint who still struggles with sin. We always struggle with it. We need God's grace moment by moment. The alarm comes when you see how easily you are overcome. Those whose hearts are filled with godly sorrow will often say, I cannot believe that I did that. It's a shock. I've walked a lot of couples into a deeper look at their conflict and watched them turn right in the office, turn from defensive justification to shock and alarm at the true picture of what's happening in their hearts. I had a couple many, many, many years ago. Neither of them come to our church any longer, but they were in my office. They were so angry. Their marriage was right on the brink. They later divorced. It was right on the brink of not making it. And she is crying, and he looks over and sees the tears going down her cheeks, and he picked up a tissue 
from a box that was sitting between them and hurled it at her and said, go ahead and cry. You're not going to manipulate me anymore. What do you do with that? I mean, I'm like, this guy is a martial arts expert. True. And I'm like, okay, what do I do about this? I, I, only thing I knew was I said, you know what, listen, I'm done counseling you. I looked at him. I said, get up and get out of my office. And he said, no. And I said, I'm in my, my mind, I'm going, okay, that was my best shot. I don't know what else to do. <laughs> I mean, what am I going to do? Beat him up and get killed? Well, actually, if I, no, it didn't work very well. So I finally said, okay, then I'm going to leave, and you can stay here as long as you want. But I'm not going to counsel you when your heart is filled with that kind of sinful anger. It allowed him to de-escalate and in that moment understand the truer picture of what was going on in his heart. But listen, it never brought the alarm. It never brought the shock that he was capable of hurling a tissue at his wife when she's crying. Now, the tissue did far less damage than his words would ever do. But when we don't have the shock and when we don't have the alarm at what we're capable of doing, and listen, what we did in that breach, what we did when we offended that person, when we sinned against that person, listen, if we don't have the shock and the alarm, then you cannot move fully towards repentance. Godly sorrow brings the alarm. Parents, it brings it to us when we do not handle our children graciously. It ought to arrest us, stop us in our tracks, and make us shut our mouths, get right with the Lord and go back with grace to them and handle it the right way. Then Paul goes on with longing. It's a consuming desire, number five, longing. It's a consuming desire to see the relationship that you damaged be restored. It's the chief desire. There are overtures made. There are, there's overtures made with patience to experience peace and joy with that person again. Listen, it's that soft little thing, husbands, that you could do your wives when you just come up after an argument and put your hand on hers and say, you know what, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. And I don't want us to go to bed angry. I love you. You're the most important person in my life, and I don't want to do this to you. That's the overture that is so soft, yet when it's accompanied by patience and earnestness and truth and sincerity, it's capable of beginning to heal the breach. It's a desire that doesn't waste or wane, rather, after a day or a week, but stays constant. There's longing. I want to love that person, my coworker, my boss, my employee. I want to be in a relationship that's filled with peace. Then there's concern, there's letter F, concern. You know, the Greek word here, this is Greek, that that's, this is translated from. The Greek word looks and sounds exactly like our word, zealous. And that's what it means. This, our word, zealous, came from this word in the Greek. It's a holy effort to get rid of that sin in our hearts. It's the preeminent effort. You're not going to do anything more than to get rid of this sin that's in your heart. It's to work hard in the grace of God to reform our hearts so that you don't hurt that person again. It's to walk with God so closely that he produces in you a desire to love and a desire for selflessness. And then there's one more. These are the godly 
These are the signs of godly sorrow that leads to repentance. A readiness to see justice done. You know, I love this one. This one's so striking, so clear of repentance. Because truly repentant people are willing to make restitution for the wrongs that they've committed. They accept their responsibility for their sins. They don't defend themselves. Listen, if you stole from somebody a year ago and God begins to show you what you did was wrong, then godly sorrow that leads to repentance means that you go back to the person, back to the store, whatever the cost, you are ready to see justice done and you repay the amount that you stole. Listen, this is what godly sorrow looks like Now you listen, and it's almost completely absent from Jonah. This is what repentance looks like, and you're not going to find it in the life of Jonah. And I'm going to give you the reason why, verse, point number three. Jonah's theology was unapplied, and I'm going to explain that. Jonah had a lot of theology, but it was unapplied. Nineveh would one day, you realize this, that Nineveh was going to be one day utterly destroyed. Listen to this, centuries after this great revival, when Jonah was preaching, about 400 years, four centuries, Alexander the Great, with his armies, would be marching over the land that had long ago buried the city of Nineveh. He did not even know where he was. He did not even know that the city of Nineveh, its remnants, lied, laid below him. That's how utterly devastated this city was. Remember, an exceedingly great city, 60 miles around, walls that are 8 miles long, 100 feet high, watchtowers 200 feet high. Listen, this great city was absolutely demolished. Nothing left of it. In fact, it was so completely obliterated, it happened in the year 612 B.C. It disappeared almost without a trace. It was actually considered a myth until the 18th century when when an archaeologist, Austin Laird, discovered it. They even, they they thought it was just a folktale, the city of Nineveh. They thought the Bible made something up. But on this particular day in Jonah, the book of Jonah, on that day, the entire city repents and they enjoyed the incredible grace of God. Now watch this. Now listen, be part of Jonah for a moment. It seems like an incredible success story. It it would put Jonah today on the cover of Christianity Today. He'd be the most famous evangelist, more famous than Billy Graham. This was the greatest revival that has ever happened on the planet. He had a respected career, Jonah did. He was at the pinnacle, the peak of his success, of his favor, of his popularity. And listen, he was theologically an educated man. They had prophet schools. They had schools of prophecy like our seminaries. And Jonah went to those schools. He followed the famous footsteps of Elijah and Elisha. This guy is famous. He's at the top of his game. He is full of theology. He architects the greatest revival in the history of the world. But for all of his outward accomplishments, his inner life was a mess. He's a deeply hateful, easily offended, controlling, graceless man. 
He's a teacher. Taught the Word of God. So surely, now listen, surely he, know, he knew Exodus chapter 34. Now you see it on the screen, on the sides, where it says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and, and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression. He knew all of this. And it was great when God was faithful and gracious to Israel, but not so great when he was to Nineveh. Now watch this and listen to this because now we become part of the story. If you have ever experienced someone hurting you, someone perpetrating an evil against you, this may well be your charge to God as well. Because grace can be disturbing when it is given to someone that's offended you deeply. Listen, you don't want, if you're really utterly honest, sometimes we don't really want God to be forgiving and gracious and saving to the person that's hurt us and never repented. Don't even make overtures of kindness, God. And when God blesses that person... Well, listen, I was just talking to somebody a few days ago that still is swallowed up in bitterness because the persons, plural, that hurt him so grievously have never repented and God keeps blessing them. And when that happens, you might find yourself growing really, really angry with God, accusing him with questions of why he doesn't give them what they deserve. And look at verse 2 again. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. His furious anger rises up against God. Why? Because God is not controllable. You cannot control him. He will show mercy to who he wants to show mercy. Jonah would, would have withheld it from Nineveh. He would have given it abundantly to Israel. This is so maddening to him. It's so maddening to many of us. And it reveals a disconnect between our knowledge of God and our practice of that knowledge. All the good teaching, all of the theology, listen, all of the, all of the knowledge of God that you can amass in a life of studying, it's not going to do you any good if it doesn't help you become more like God. And the break, the breach, the disconnect between his theology and his practice was God's absolute freedom to be gracious to whom he wants. Can I move the calendar from 800 B.C.? Actually, it was late 700 B.C. when this was, occurred. Let me roll that calendar forward to somewhere around 30 A.D. or 33 A.D. So that you can be reminded again, and I can be reminded of the greatest injustice ever happening in the history of humankind. When the Son of God was crucified for sinners. That's the greatest injustice ever. For God, who had known no sin, became sin. Look what it says in 2 Corinthians. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jonah, no one has experienced injustice more than Jesus. 
And Jonah, you're included, if I can preach it to Jonah for a moment, you're included among all humanity, and your sins, your own sins, and my sins, and our sins, were made the death of Jesus critical, crucial. And surely, of all people, listen, this is my... This is my frustration with me. This is my frustration with Christians. Of all people, Christians ought to be the most loving and forgiving and merciful people on the planet because we know what we've received. It makes it such a contradiction, such an oxymoron when you've got a Christian who won't forgive. You've got a Christian that doesn't love. It just makes no sense. It's illogical to the extreme. We ought to be gracious. We ought to be loving. We ought to be merciful. There should be no person who, who hurts us that remains in a breach. For as far as it depends on us, be at peace, peace with all men. You'll know that when theology begins to live, it will move you even to your enemies to bring about peace with all that you've got. Jonah was furious with God. And let me close with this. Jonah was furious with God. And his heart was laid bare to his own need of the gospel of grace. Yet he did not repent. He did not come off his throne in his heart. He was gripped not by a godly sorrow, but by a justified wrath to God himself. And his theology had not been the driver for his life. He could not control God's grace. It was irreconcilable with his selfish heart. And the only thing he knew to do was to lash out at God and blame him. Now watch this as I say my last thing. Jonah will not find repentance even by the end of this book. That's how stubbornly entrenched even a Christian's heart can be, and yet God will never stop breaking him. And it moves me to ask you this as we close. Is there a breach in your life? Is there a hurt that you've committed to someone or has someone perpetrated an evil to you that you've not yet forgiven or maybe you've not yet gone to them and asked for forgiveness? Listen, Christian brother and sister, tonight that needs to end. And tonight that needs to begin. You've got to end the war and you've got to get out there and you've got to exercise the grace of God. It's not an option. And he will show you the way to do it. Amen?